Hello there, and welcome back to another lecture on contract law. In this lecture, I'm going to discuss the rules in relation to promissory estoppel. And this follows up on and continues some of the themes or issues that arose when we were looking at the doctrine of consideration. So like one of the scenarios we were discussing when talking about consideration was the scenario whereby somebody has formed a contract They've run into financial difficulties, they've renegotiated some element of the contract with another party, but they haven't provided any fresh consideration for it, and then they act on the basis of this revised or renegotiated contract, only to have the other party turn around and try to enforce the terms of the original contract on them. So this is actually the scenario that occurred in the case of Rock Advertising versus NWB. So as you hopefully recall from the lecture on Rock versus MWB, the facts of the case were that Rock had a lease with premises that was owned by MWB. Rock ran into financial difficulties. They couldn't make the rent repayments. They were in arrears. They apparently entered into an oral agreement with representatives from MWB that proposed a revised schedule of payments, whereby they would pay back a lower amount initially for a few months and then a higher amount later on. Rock Advertising then acted on the basis of this renegotiated agreement. They started paying off the lower agreed amount, but then MWB changed their minds and tried to enforce the original terms of the agreement. Now, as you recall from the outcome in the case, there were two issues that arose. One was whether this oral agreement was valid because the original lease agreement contained something called a no oral modification clause. And then the other issue was whether they, Rock Advertising, had provided any fresh new consideration for this renegotiated agreement. And ultimately, the UK Supreme Court found that the no oral modification clause was valid, and so this oral agreement wasn't permissible. But some of you might have been wondering or thinking to yourselves that the facts of that case seem remarkably unfair. Let's say it's definitely true, it's confirmed that there was this oral agreement between Rock Advertising and MWB. MWB then apparently committed to allowing Rock Advertising to pay back a lower rent. Rock Advertising acted on the foot of or on the basis of that agreement only then to have the rug pulled out from under their feet by MWB, who tried to enforce the original contract. I mean, there's something a little bit duplicitous and unfair about that kind of behavior from a commercial actor like MWB. So are we really saying that MWB are not bound by their word, that they can make promises of this sort willy-nilly and not be on the hook for it? Well, it's an interesting question, and the answer to it might be that MWB aren't entitled to make promises of this kind and then go back on them, because there is a doctrine in law, it's actually a, an equitable doctrine, so this is something to remember from your intro to legal systems classes, it's a doctrine that arose from the courts of equity as opposed to the common law courts, and that doctrine is the doctrine of permissory estoppel. And put most simply, the doctrine of permissory estoppel or the rule on permissory estoppel, is in effect an exception to the rule on consideration that applies in limited circumstances. 
Now, the term estoppel is a little bit unusual. It arises in law quite a lot, but it is kind of an archaic and antiquated term. So what does it actually mean? Well, in a sense, when you say that somebody is estopped from doing something, what you mean is that they are legally barred or prevented from doing something. So an estoppel is a legal impediment or ban on making claims and going back on them. Or to actually quote a dictionary definition of it, estoppel is a legal term that interdicts or bars a person from making claims because they are discrepant with statements earlier made. In other words, it basically debars people from going against the previously established facts. So if we apply the doctrine to the scenario in Rock versus MWB, and I'm not saying that this is the correct conclusion here because this wasn't an issue in the case, what we might say is that MWB are stopped from going back on their word about accepting the reduced rate of rent for a period of time because they did make a good faith promise to Rock Advertising and Rock Advertising acted on foot of that promise. So let me try and then give a formulation of the rule on promissory estoppel, which, as I mentioned, is an exception to the rule on consideration. Here's my formulation of it, and this is drawn from case law that we will discuss later in this lecture. But here's what it says. It says that if one party, A, makes an unequivocal promise to B, either through words or through actions, stating that A will waive or suspend his or her strict legal rights to something or other, if B acts on the basis of this promise, and if it would be inequitable to allow A to go back on their promise, then the promise in question may be enforceable, even if no consideration is provided for the promise. So, estoppel is a long-standing idea in equity, and you'll encounter it in other subjects that you do. But the doctrine of permissory estoppel was incorporated into contract law in England and Ireland, largely through a couple of cases in the late 1800s and then again in the mid-20th century. So what I'm going to do in the remainder of this lecture is I'm going to discuss those two cases and then discuss a bunch of limitations to the doctrine of promissory estoppel. So the first case I'm going to discuss is Hughes versus Metropolitan Railway Company. It's an 1877 English Appeals Court decision. So the facts of the case are that the Metropolitan Railway Company were leasing a property from the plaintiff, Hughes. Under the terms of the lease, Hughes was entitled to force the Metropolitan Railway Company to repair the property within six months on pain of eviction, provided he served notice on Metropolitan Railway Company to repair the property. So in October of 1874... Hughes served notice on the Metropolitan Railway Company telling them that they had six months to repair the property or else they would be evicted. The Metropolitan Railway Company responded basically favorably to this notice, saying that they would carry out the repairs, but they also added that maybe Hughes would like to buy out their interest in the property. They didn't really want the property anymore. Maybe instead of them repairing it, Hughes might like to buy it back from them or rather buy back the remainder of their lease from them. Because they made this statement or suggestion, Metropolitan Railway Company said that they would defer any repair work 
until they negotiated whether Hughes was going to purchase the lease back from them. They entered into negotiations about this possibility in November of 1874, but at this moment in time, Hughes never said anything to them about the deferral of the repair work. So he never said that he was in agreement with them that they would defer doing the repair work pending the outcome of any negotiations. Now, negotiations between the pair broke down at the end of December 1874. There were then no further communications between the parties until April 1875, which, for those of you that are paying attention to this, is nearly six months after the original notice. At this moment in time, Metropolitan Railway Company maybe a little bit concerned about the possibility of eviction from the premises, wrote to Hughes saying that they were going to start the repairs. The six months originally allotted to them by Hughes expired or ended on the 22nd of April, 1875. Hughes then issued a notice to evict them from the premises on the 28th of April, 1875. The Metropolitan Railway Company continued with the repair work and completed those repairs in June, 1875, But at this moment in time then, Hughes tried to enforce his right to evict them from the premises. And so the Metropolitan Railway Company brought a case, and what they alleged in the case was that the six-month notice period should have been suspended during the period of negotiations, and they argued this specifically on the grounds of estoppel. So the idea was that Hughes was estopped from relying on the six-month notice period due to the fact that he had committed to these negotiations with them. And the House of Lords agreed with them. So I actually want to quote from the judgment in this case by Lord Justice Cairns, because I think it is a good statement of the equitable principle or doctrine of estoppel, and the ideas or concepts within it feature in subsequent case law about promissory estoppel in contract law. So I'll just quote from a paragraph of the judgment first, and then I'm going to provide some commentary on certain features or passages within that paragraph. So here's the quote. It is the first principle upon which all courts of equity proceed, that if parties who have entered into definite and distinct terms involving certain legal results, i.e. certain penalties or legal forfeiture, afterwards, by their own act or with their own consent, enter upon a course of negotiation which has the effect of leading one of the parties to suppose that the strict rights arising under the contract will not be enforced or will be kept in suspense or held in abeyance, the person who otherwise might have enforced those rights will not be allowed to enforce them where it would be inequitable having regard to the dealings which have thus taken place between the parties. So that's a longish quote and contains some archaic legal language in it, but it's actually a very good quote because it really summarizes the essence of the rule on promissory estoppel, and we're really just going to see variations or implementations on this rule in subsequent case law. So let me just comment on a couple of features of that quotation. First, the initial part of it saying that if parties who have entered into some definite and distinct terms afterwards by their own act or with their own consent enter upon a course of negotiation which has the effect of leaving one party to think that strict legal rights will be suspended, that contains two important ideas. One is that the doctrine of estoppel only arises when there is some kind of pre-existing legal relationship between the parties. So for our purposes, you can only rely on the doctrine of promissory estoppel 
where you have actually already formed a legally binding contract with a f- sufficient consideration. So estoppel only really applies in the context of the renegotiation or modification of terms of a contract. It's not an independent doctrine that applies outside of contractual relationships. The other key idea in that passage is that permissory estoppel, what happens in in the typical case is that somebody agrees to suspend their strict legal rights. So somebody who would have a, a right to performance under a contract or enforcement of a contract suspends their rights to performance of the contractual terms, but they can potentially resurrect those contractual rights at a later point in time. And the other idea then contained in that passage from Lord Justice Cairns is that estoppel will only be enforced or upheld where it would be inequitable to allow somebody to go back on their promise. So applying that to the facts in Hughes versus Metropolitan Railway, what the court is saying is that when Hughes entered into the negotiations with Metropolitan Railway Company to purchase back the lease from them, he made a representation suggesting that he was suspending his legal right to evict them after six months. And because he had made that representation through his conduct, through negotiation with them, he was stopped from going back on it and relying on the six months. Now that said, the estoppel was suspensory only in nature, so he would have been entitled to resurrect or restart the six-month notice period after the negotiations had broken down. But the fact that nothing was said about it and nothing was communicated about it meant that he was not entitled to rely upon it. So fast forward now from 1877 till 1947, so almost exactly 70 years later, And we have another really important and very influential English case called Central London Property Trust versus High Trees House. And this is kind of the leading modern authority for the doctrine of permissory estoppel, and it's the one that gets cited in all the case law about it, including Irish case law. And this is a decision by Lord Justice Denning. So let's talk about the facts of this case. So the facts actually arose during World War II. So the defendant company, High Trees, had taken out a 99-year lease from Central London Property Trust for a block of flats in London. Now, for those of you who are familiar with history, London was heavily bombed during World War II by the Germans, during a period known as the Blitz, and many people fled London during this period of time, and as a result, as you might imagine, the demand for flats in London went down. So High Trees Limited had some trouble filling or occupying the flats. So in light of this difficulty, they entered into negotiations with the Central London Property Trust in January of 1940, whereby the Central London Property Trust agreed to reduce the annual rent, the lease rent, that High Trees owed them from £2,500 per annum to £1,250 per annum. So they reduced it by half. So High Trees Limited then paid this reduced rent for the duration of the war. By January of 1945, the flats were fully occupied once more. The period of the Blitz had ended. The demand had gone back up. So then in September of 1945, after World War II had ended ended in Europe in May and ended in the Pacific in August, the 
receiver for the company, Central London Property Trust, wrote to High Trees Limited claiming the arrears of rent. So in essence, what the receiver was arguing was that, okay, look, you paid this reduced rate of rent throughout the war, you now owe us all the outstanding rent. So, look, the case came to court. Lord Justice Denning then, in a judgment, held that the Central London Property Trust could not claim, or the receiver for them, rather, could not claim for the arrears of rent during the period from 1940 to 1944. However, once things had returned to normal and there was full occupancy of the flats again, The implication was that the agreement that was reached in January of 1940 would come to an end and the original rent would be restored. So again, to translate that into more legal language, what he's saying is that the agreement in January of 1940, even though there was no consideration provided by High Trees for that reduced rent, did give rise to an estoppel. Central London Property Trust had entered into this agreement in good faith and they couldn't renege upon it or step back from it. And the effect of this agreement was to suspend their right to the full amount of rent throughout the period of time when it was difficult for High Trees Limited to occupy the flats in London. But once they could occupy the flats, the original rental agreement kicked back in and the full amount of rent was due once more. So hopefully that's straightforward enough, but I just want to quote from Lord Denning's judgment, because when you combine the passage I'm about to quote from Denning with the passage from Lord Justice Cairns in Hughes vs. Metropolitan Railway Company, you do get what I think is the best summarization or summary of the doctrine of promissory estoppel. So what does Denning say? He says, In the past 50 years, there have been cases in which a promise was made which was intended to create legal relations and which, to the knowledge of the person making the promise, was going to be acted on by the person to whom it was made and which was in fact so acted on. In such cases, courts have said that the promise must be honoured. In each case, the court held the promise to be binding on the party making it, even though, under the old common law, it might be difficult to find any consideration for it. The courts have not gone so far as to give a cause of action in damages for the breach of such a promise, but they have refused to allow the party making it to act inconsistently with it. It is in that sense, and that sense only, that such a promise gives rise to an estoppel. The logical consequence, no doubt, is that a promise to accept a smaller sum in discharge of a larger sum, if acted upon, is binding, notwithstanding the absence of consideration. And if the fusion of law and equity leads to this result, so much the better. So look, I mean, the significance of this might be lost on you as you're listening to this. So let me try to underline it and explain why it's significant. I think I mentioned in one of the earlier lectures that Lord Justice Denning wasn't really a fan of the doctrine of consideration. And many people have not been fans of the doctrine of consideration. And we'll discuss why in the next lecture. But what he's arguing in this case is that once the common law system and the equitable system became fused together in the late 1800s, the equitable rules on estoppel could be transposed into contract law in a way that allowed for a reasonably significant modification to the traditional common law rules on consideration, namely that 
if people were already in a contractual agreement and one party promised to do something such as accept a reduced amount of payment and no consideration was provided for this on the other side, they may nevertheless be legally bound to accept that lesser form of payment if it is inequitable to allow them to go back on their word. So this is actually an exception and modification to the rule on the part payment of a debt that we mentioned in the previous lecture, and the leading authority on that is Folks v. Beer. And in fact, in the judgment in Central London Property Trust and High Trees, Lord Justice Denning acknowledges that this is a modification to the rule in Folks and Beer, but he says that it's a welcome modification, and it's not something that was considered in that authority because they didn't consider the impact that the fusion of equity and common law had on the doctrine of consideration. So it's an important statement of principle. And in a sense, it has been, over the long run, a win for Denning in his battle against the doctrine of consideration because it has become accepted that there is this modification or exception to the rule when it comes to cases of promissory estoppel. And that was actually something that was acknowledged in the judgment in Rock versus MWB, even though it's not argued or not an issue there. One of the suggestions by the judges in their conclusions is that the scenario in that case could be covered by the rules on promissory estoppel. So there is an important Irish case on the doctrine of promissory estoppel that I want to mention, because it's a clear endorsement and acceptance of this idea into Irish law. And the case in question is Kenny versus Kelly, which is a 1988 High Court decision. And this might be particularly interesting to some of you because it's about college students and them being allocated places in universities. So what are the facts of the case? Well, the plaintiff here, Kenny, was offered a place as an art student in UCD in September of 1986. She, however, wanted to defer her placement, starting her degree instead in September of 1987. The problem was that she had already accepted her place and she had actually paid part of the deposit on her fees for the year. So her father went into the college admissions office on about the 29th or 30th of September, the exact date is unknown, requesting a deferral for the year for his daughter. An official in the office told the father that the daughter could get a deferral if she wrote a letter in requesting it formally. She wrote in, but received a response telling her that it was too late for requests for deferral to be considered. And as a result, she was denied a place in UCD. And in fact, the following year, she couldn't get a place in UCD either because the points total for arts had risen. So she instituted judicial review proceedings against UCD, alleging that she was entitled to a place on the course in 1987. Now, a small technicality about this case is that because it's a judicial review proceeding, she didn't rely directly on a doctrine from contract law per se. She relied upon the doctrine of legitimate expectation, which you may have come across or may yet come across in constitutional law because it features in an important decision called Webb versus Ireland. So let me just quote from the judgment of Justice Barron in Kenny v. Kelly. So he says, The applicant seeks to rely upon the doctrine of legitimate expectation as approved in Webb v. Ireland. In that case, the plaintiffs, having found treasure trove, very properly handed it over to the National Museum. When doing so, they had been assured that they would be treated honorably. It was held that such assurance was 
an integral part of the transaction whereby the find was handed over and was enforceable. The principles of promissory estoppel upon which this decision, Webb v. Ireland, was based, apply equally to the present case. The applicant had already accepted her place in university and paid a deposit towards her fees. If she wanted to attend as a student in that year, she had to pay the balance of her fees and to register. If she did not do so, she would have lost her rights to attend and would also have lost her deposit. The promise by the official in the office was a deferral of a deferral was in effect a promise not to require the applicant to register and pay the balance of her fees in 1986, but a promise to permit her to do so instead in 1987. Such a promise to delay the enforcement of legal rights is of the essence of the doctrine of promissory estoppel as it has been developed in Central London Property Trust versus High Trees House Limited. In that case, the essence of promissory estoppel was said to be a promise that's intended to be binding, intended to be acted upon, and in fact acted upon, and in my view, the facts of the present case come within these principles. So Kenny won her case, and the university was stopped from denying her her place at the course. So look, those three cases that I just discussed, Hughes, High Trees, and Kenny v. Kelly, give you the majority of what you need to know about the rule on promissory estoppel. There are, however, a number of key limitations built into the rule that I do want to review because some of them have been clarified or expanded upon in case law subsequent to the High Trees case. So we'll wrap up this lecture by looking at five limitations on the doctrine in particular. And I'm going to run through these a little bit quickly. There's more detail and more case law cited in the notes that accompany this particular lecture. So check those out for the additional backup and additional authorities to support these limitations. Okay, so the first limitation is that permissory estoppel is a shield and not a sword. And this is a phrase that is frequently used in the case law about it. What does that mean? Well, that really comes from its equitable origin, which is that equity can only act as a shield and not a sword. And this is something you'll learn if you study the law of equity. So in the context of contract law, what that means is that permissory estoppel only arises when there is a pre-existing legal relationship of some kind, pre-existing contractual relationship in particular, between the parties. It cannot create a new cause of action where there wouldn't have been a cause of action previously. So the case that is usually cited as authority for this limitation is a case called Coombe v. Coombe, or maybe Combe v. Combe, I'm not sure. This involved a married couple who got divorced. So the important point here is that the divorce dissolves their marital contract. After the divorce, the defendant agreed to pay the plaintiff an allowance of £100 per annum. The plaintiff offered no consideration in return for this promise to pay the £100 allowance. Now, the defendant never paid the money, but the plaintiff never claimed it either. And seven years after the agreement was reached, she sued for the arrears of the allowance owing. And she argued that she acted on the plaintiff's promise to pay her £100 per annum to her detriment. But her claim was rejected by the Court of Appeal, with actually Lord Justice Denning deciding the case because they held that there was no suspension of pre-existing legal rights involved in this case. The marital contract had been dissolved, and so this promise to pay £100 per annum of an allowance was, in a sense, just a gift, 
and couldn't be enforced in a court of law. So I should mention that this limitation on the doctrine of permissio estoppel, while accepted here, has been rejected in some other jurisdictions, including some other common law jurisdictions like Australia and New Zealand. They actually have a much more generous doctrine of permissio estoppel, as does the US. And for those of you that are interested in this, I've outlined what the US doctrine is on the notes for this course. Okay, so the second limitation I want to discuss is that Promissory estoppel must involve a clear and unequivocal promise to give up strict legal rights. And what this means really is that there must be no ambiguity about the nature of the promise. But that said, the promise can be communicated via words or actions, as in fact was the case in Hughes vs. Metropolitan Railway Company. Now there's lots of cases that emphasize this point, that it must be a clear and unequivocal promise. And you can find that case law cited in the notes for the course. The third limitation I want to discuss is that there must have been reliance on the promise by the promisee. In other words, the person who relies on the promise must have altered his or her position in some way on foot of the promise. So again, you have in Hughes versus Metropolitan Railway Company, the Metropolitan Railway Company not doing anything about the repairs that suggest that they're relying on the implied promise not to rely upon the original six-month eviction notice period. Same thing in high trees. High trees are relying upon the promise to accept a lesser rent. There has been some confusion in case law, however, as to whether the reliance in question must be detrimental reliance. In other words, you must have relied upon the promise to your detriment in some way. So there are some English cases that suggest that you don't need to rely upon detrimental reliance, but there are some Irish cases that suggest that Courts do fixate or focus on detrimental reliance. Uh, let me just very briefly mention two such cases. So an English case called the Post Chaser. That's the name of the ship involved in the case. It's actually a much longer title to the case or official citation for the case. But it's very common in common law and actually in law more generally to refer to cases involving ships by just the name of the ship. So I'm, just, I'm calling it the Post Chaser case. And in that case, the facts of which you can find out for yourself, uh, Justice Goff said that, and here I'm quoting, it is not necessary to show detriment. Indeed, the representee, the promisee, may have benefited from the representation, and yet it may be inequitable, at least without reasonable notice, for the representor to enforce his legal rights. So suggesting that detrimental reliance isn't important, just inequity in going back on your word, there is an Irish case called in the matter of J.R. Award of Court, which does focus on the need for detrimental reliance. So the, the facts of the case are that you had an elderly patient committed to a psychiatric ward, couldn't make decisions for himself. He was made a ward of court, and his wardship committee decided to sell some property that he owned to pay for his ongoing care. The problem with this was that apparently he had made a prior promise to a woman that he lived with that she would be allowed to live in his house. And in the judgment in this case, Costello J said that there was a promissory estoppel here because the woman had relied on the promise to her detriment because she had actually given up her own dwelling place to move into the ward's house. So a little bit of confusion there. There must be reliance upon a promise, but it's not clear whether it has to be detrimental reliance. I mean, the thing that we can say with some degree of certainty is that 
if there is detrimental reliance, that makes a stronger case for estoppel than if there isn't. But it may not be essential. So the next limitation on the doctrine, and this may be the more important one than the detrimental reliance, is that there must be inequity involved in going back on your word. So this is actually a vague concept in law, but it basically means it is unjust or unfair or a violation of good faith for you to go back on your word. So I'm I'm not sure I can give clear guidance on this, apart from to say that inequity is one of those things that people tend to know when they see it or think that they know when they see it. It's some perceived sense of unfairness in transgressing or violating a previous promise. And then the final limitation on the rule on permissory estoppel is that the rule on permissory estoppel is suspensory only. Now, I've mentioned this a couple of times already, but it only suspends your legal rights. It does not extinguish them, and you can resurrect your legal rights through proper notice. So this is what happened in the High Trees case. That's what Lord Denning found. He found that Central London Properties Trust's original rights under the lease agreement to the 2,500 per annum was resurrected once the flats were fully occupied. And there's also another case that illustrates this point, which is a case called Tool Metal Manufacturing Limited versus Tungsten Limited, English case again from the 1950s. And the facts of the case are as follows. Tungsten Limited were in breach of a copyright that was held by Tool Metal Manufacturing. Upon learning of this breach of copyright, Tool Metal Manufacturing brokered a deal saying that they would not claim for the infringement of the copyright if Tungsten paid them royalties on any sales they made. Now, the terms of this deal were quite harsh, but Tungsten agreed to it in order to avoid a lawsuit for breach of copyright. During World War II, Tungsten found it quite difficult to make these royalty payments. And so the two sides met and agreed that the royalty payments did not have to be made. And the court held that this deal was only suspensory in nature, so it only suspended tool metal manufacturing's rights until the war was over, and thereafter they could resurrect their rights. But during the period of the war, when there were these financial difficulties, the promissory estoppel held. They were stopped from demanding more money. Okay, so that's it for promissory estoppel. As I said, there's a little bit more detail in the notes for this lecture, some more case law and some more examples. To very quickly summarize, however, permissory estoppel is an important modification or exception to the rule on consideration that arises from the fusion between the common law and the rules of equity. It arises where one party makes a promise to suspend their strict legal rights that is clear and unequivocal. The other party relies upon that promise, and it is inequitable for the promisor to go back upon the words of that promise. And in those circumstances, even if there's no consideration provided by the promisee for that promise, the promisor will be stopped from denying it or going back on it or enforcing their strict legal rights. That said, permissory estoppel is, to reiterate the last point I made, suspensory only. Okay, so that really brings us to the end of this discussion of consideration and permissory estoppel, and that's really a whole topic, a detailed and important topic that we've covered. And now I think it's probably time to offer some critical reflections upon it, and in particular to consider whether we need the doctrine of consideration at all. And that's what I'll discuss in the next lecture.